0: Well, today, I want to remind us of the call that is upon every single one of our lives. In light of Go Week, how ought we to live? God's calling on every follower of Jesus. That's our reminder this morning. I want to summarize for you just something you were reminded of last week, and that is that when it comes to global missions, there's two very important categories of missions participants. And we heard about this the last two Sundays. There's goers and there's senders. Today, we want to spend a little bit of time reminding ourselves of the overarching category that all Christians fall into, regardless. Of whether you are a goer or a sender. You may be, hopefully you are, hopefully you're wrestling with God's call upon your life this week. Am I, maybe you're asking this question, am I a goer? Am I a sender? What is God's call upon my life to be involved in global outreach? But I want to share with us this morning the reminder that scripture is very clear on this thing. Like, as one of the pastors here, I don't know, I don't know what God's call upon your life is to be involved in global missions i'm not sure if you are a goer or a sender but i can tell you one thing for sure that god's call upon your life is clear that all christians are a people on mission that is for sure true some of you in this room are goers god is calling you to leave and to go some of you the rest of us are senders We should be involved in the process of helping others go, supporting them, encouraging them, and praying for them. But one thing that's true of all of us collectively is regardless of that call, specific call in our life, all of us are Christians, as Christians are a people on mission. I received a phone call this week that was just a good reminder for me. A mom called the church this week and asked for prayer. And her prayer request was this. She said, would you guys please be praying for my son? He's an active military. He's a soldier, and her prayer request was that her son, at any minute, could at any moment, could get orders or assignments to go, to go to one of the places around the world where we are active, where we are involved in keeping peace. And you can hear, you can just sense that if you're a mom or a dad, I'm sure you feel that that fear, maybe, Um, anxiousness of, I know where my son currently is. He's currently active. He is serving. He is defending. He's doing his job. But I'm nervous. I'm anxious because he's going to be sent. And as I prayed for that mom and as I tried to carry that burden with her for a moment, that prayer request was a great reminder for me of the call on all of our lives. You see, every one of us, you and I, are active duty Christ followers. Active duty. We're living for him, on mission for him. We are called right now to live for Jesus and to tell others about him, while at the same time ready for orders to be called overseas. I hope you view your life that way. I hope you view your life as currently living for Jesus, telling others about Jesus, doing what you've been called to do while at the same time balancing that potential call of your life to leave what you feel normal or comfortable here to go where God is calling you to go. I hope you feel that tension. See, the reality is that wherever we are, we ought to live on mission, right? It's not a future calling to live on mission. You're not just a citizen here waiting to be called into the fight. We are living for Jesus, actively pointing people towards him while at the same time waiting to be called and be willing to say yes. My hope today is that each of us would be reminded of the current call in our lives to live for Jesus, wherever we are, currently sent, until he sends us somewhere else. So this morning we're going to start with our take-home truth because it's simple, it's pointed, and it's a good reminder for us. Let's just start with our take-home truth today. Please write this down, take this with you to your small group, and we'll chat about it a little bit more. Our take-home truth today is Christ followers are and have always been people on mission church that's who you are you are a christ follower you're here worshiping jesus therefore you are a people on mission today active duty christ followers so let's today look at the birth of the church in the book of acts we're just going to summarize it i promise you we won't go verse by verse today take a while. So we're just going to do a a quick sweep of the first seven chapters of the book of Acts to see this reality. Acts is the beautiful story of the church's birth, and it's a model for us to see the church's mission. Acts does not tell the story of a perfect church, not even close. There are none. But it does tell the story of a passionate, spirit-filled church striving to proclaim the gospel and for that it's a great model because that's who first family desires to be not a perfect church we won't be but a passionate spirit-filled church striving to proclaim the gospel acts is fascinating to me and i hope you're in acts chapter one right now skimming through the text looking at the headings which are reminding you of these very familiar stories Acts starts with a fascinating story between Jesus and his disciples right before the ascension. And it starts with this final, or Acts starts with the final conversation between Jesus and the disciples. And the conversation revolves around the disciples assuming Jesus would restore the splendor of Israel. See that? Verse 6 It starts with the disciples assuming that Jesus would restore the splendor of Israel. The disciples want the kingdom of Israel restored, but Jesus wants to hear about him. The disciples are waiting for this kingdom to be uh, visible, but Jesus wants the good news to be shared. Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set up by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. See, the the disciples wanted the kingdom of Israel restored, but Jesus wants the world to hear the good news about his death and resurrection. Jesus tells the disciples what they should be about. What matters most is that the world would know Jesus' name. Again, let's keep in balance what Jesus says here. Jesus does does not say in Acts chapter 1 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem only. Right, guys? Let's stay here. Let's camp out. Let's put together a large amount of Christ followers right here. He doesn't say only. Jerusalem only, nor does he say you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth only, right? The full world has Jesus's heart. Your closest neighbors and your furthest neighbors have Jesus's heart. When Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses, he mentioned four locations this is summary to you, I know, but it's a good reminder for sure. He mentions to them Jerusalem. and Jerusalem, Jesus is pointing them to the city they were in. You will be my witnesses here. Tell these people about me. Be active duty proclaimers of the gospel where you are at. Jesus secondly mentions Judea. Judea was the area the land around them. We could use the word county that they were in. He reminds them of a larger circle of influence, the area they were in. You will be my witnesses in Judea. This area needs to know my name. Don't be so narrow focused that you only focus on your closest neighbors, but remember the area around you, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of people around you that need to know the name of Jesus. I think it's interesting also he mentioned Samaria. Just a quick summary of who Samaria was. Samaria was the closest cross-cultural neighbor. Samaria was the town you didn't want to go into. It was the place you avoided. It's fascinating to me that Jesus mentioned Samaria. You will be my witnesses there. Probably was a difficult pill for the disciples to swallow. Many of them probably thought, I don't want to go there. And Jesus specifically mentions it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the area, and that part of the area you don't like to go to. You will be my witnesses there. And then lastly, Jesus mentions the ends of the earth. You will go. You will be sent. Someone has to go, Romans chapter 10. They can't hear unless you go. Some will stay. Some will go. Jesus' heart is for every tribe, every language, every nation. His heart breaks for the globe, including your nearest neighbors. My challenge for us today is that after eight days of great encouragement to reach the nations, we won't also forget our nearest neighbors. So let's look at how the disciples fulfilled the call to be Christ's witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea in Acts chapters 1 through 7. And what does it look like for us to be obedient to these instructions today? I wanna just mention three things today, quick three-point outline. Three things you can write down, you can take these to your small group this week, you can wrestle with these with your spouse, wanna just encourage you to wrestle with these three things. In Acts chapters one through, three, uh, one through seven, we see three things. That Jesus challenges the, the followers of, of, of Christ, we see the New Testament church exude three things. Number one, we see a contagious community. What we see throughout Acts chapter one through seven is that the early church lived differently than the than the people around them. The early church followers of Jesus lived noticeably different lives than the world they lived in. Let me read for you Acts chapter two. You're going to flip to Acts chapter two now. We're going to make our way through. Look at Acts chapter two verses forty four to forty seven. It reads this way: Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It's very noticeable in the first couple chapters of Acts the difference the followers of Jesus um, lived than the rest of the world. First thing we see is contagious community. Now flip over to Acts 4. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. It says this Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them. Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them. Brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Isn't that, isn't that radical? I hope you read those texts and to a little bit of you, maybe even like a little skepticism comes out of you or or, or shock comes out of you. Like, come on, that's not, that's not real, is it? I hope that's your natural response because of how different the early church lived than we do today. It is shocking to read these passages. You see, church, in a world that is experiencing intense disunity, is that the world we live in today? Absolutely. In a world that is experiencing intense disunity, a contagious, unified community will be an, incredibly, an incredible witness to our neighbors. That's one thing we offer This world is unity, community, love, care for one another, support. In a world that's continuing to put up walls and and space and, and hide, community will be contagious to the world we live in. One way that the disciples were to be a witness in Jerusalem was to live lives of care and concern and love, and that was going to be contagious to the world around them. No doubt the early church, the people in Jerusalem, the first uh, first century uh, folks were noticing an incredible difference between the Christ followers and the rest of the world. As you read Acts and and the Gospels, there is this noticeable difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Christ followers, right? They're all religious, but there's an obvious difference. And in Acts, it's very blatant what it is. It's love and care and support, concern for one another. I want this to be true here because it is contagious in the world that's intensely disunified. just want to remind you again of a verse you're very familiar with, which is John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? if you have love for one another. That's what's contagious. That's what people desire is this love that they're not currently experiencing. In a world that loves hot button topics to divide us. In a world that loves camps, right? What side are you on? Who do you agree with? We love, we don't love it, but we seem to love it, disunity, right? We want to argue and, and pit people against each other. That's the one thing that will be so noticeably different in the church is this contagious community, love for one another, which identifies us as Christians. In Acts chapters 1-7, through 7, the second thing we see that is just true of the New Testament believers, the second thing that they embody is extravagant compassion. Extravagant compassion. The early followers of Jesus loved people who were not in their community. Very different, again, from the world that they lived in. This extravagant compassion for those around them. And it was radically, radically noticeable to the world around them. We're going to have you flip back a chapter now to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, again, a very familiar story to many of you. But I do want to read it just to help you see this extra- extravagant compassion that the new testament believers had acts chapter 3 says this a man verse 2 a man who was lame from birth was being carried there he was placed each day at the temple gate called beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple when he saw peter and john about to enter the temple he asked for money Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, "'Look at us.' So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, "'I don't have silver or gold, "'but what I do have, I give you. "'In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk.' Then, taking him by his right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong, so he jumped up and started to walk." And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonished at what had happened to him. Now I know Acts chapter 3 is hard to apply because it's a miracle of healing, but please don't miss Peter and John's kindness. How many people do you think that day walked past that man? It was many. Many people that day ignored the beggar because he sits there often doing the same thing. No doubt that number is large of the many people that day that ignored the beggar the action of the apostles to give up their time and to be inconvenienced by this beggar was an act of extravagant compassion. You could say it was simple, but what made it extravagant was the very fact of how many times he was ignored. To this man, it was extravagant. Also, please notice Peter's faith that God would demonstrate his power. Peter had this amazing relationship with God, this closeness with God, to know God's heart well enough to assume God would show up. Is this encounter an inconvenience or is it divine? Was this something that God put into my life to demonstrate his goodness and his love to the world? I'm going to assume God's going to show up in this interaction. I love that. Don't miss that. That's extravagant. That's profound. The fact that Peter and John assumed God would show up. Why? Because they knew God's heart. They knew God loved the world, including the beggar at the beautiful gate. Rather than ignore him, they were inconvenienced and willing to show this extravagant love and compassion for others. Friends, When was the last time you and I had an opportunity to demonstrate compassion but didn't? Can you wrestle with that for just a moment? Was there a moment you had an opportunity to share love, to share kindness, to share the gospel, and you didn't? Maybe you just weren't willing to be inconvenienced. We're busy people, you know. We got places we got to go things we got to do that to-do list not going to be able to sleep if I don't get that to-do list maybe we were unwilling to be inconvenienced or is it possible you didn't believe God would show up there's an opportunity to serve you looked at your bank account you looked for cash in your pocket and thought I don't have anything to offer them I wrestle with this many times when it comes to, like, a car broken down or something like this. I'm the least mechanical person in the room. And so if there's a car broken down, my first inclination is they don't want me to help. I'll only make it worse, which, again, probably proves my lack of faith, right? There's an opportunity to show compassion. What's my natural default? Some mechanical drive-by. I can't do anything. I love Peter and John's response. I don't have any silver or gold. I don't have what you want, but I have what you need. I have something far greater than what you think you need. That's extravagant compassion that we should also demonstrate. Compassion, church, demands inconvenience. Compassion demands inconvenience. And sadly, I think our selfishness is one of the greatest hindrances to our gospel proclamations. I'll pick on myself again. Is the reality I'm not a good mechanic or is the reality I'm selfish? You ever wrestle with that? It's easy to come up with an excuse, right? I'll just make it worse. They don't want my help. Can I be honest for a moment and say I don't want to? I think that many times is the heart of of the situation. I don't want to be inconvenienced or I don't trust that God will show up in that moment. What was so radical about the early church was the extravagant compassion they had for those that was not in the community. And lastly, the third thing we learn from Acts chapter 1 through 7 about the early church, was the early church demonstrated courageous evangelism. Bold proclamation. A, a, a unwillingness to stop. I love this about the early chapters of Acts. The common theme you can see throughout the book, the first seven chapters at least of the book of Acts, is their unwillingness to shut up about Jesus. It just oozed out of them. Their love to share the gospel. Let me read you a few few verses. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts 4.29. Acts 4.29 says this. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now turn to Acts chapter five. I love this verse. Acts 5.25. Acts 5.25 says this. Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What a great summary to the story. They're thrown in jail for telling the people about Jesus. They're out of jail. They go back to telling people about Jesus. That's the summary of the apostles. They won't stop. They're back. We need to arrest them again. Maybe we should flog them this time. That might be better. There is no doubt that one of the reasons the church flourished in its infancy was the boldness they had to proclaim. That's undeniable. You ever read Acts and you're like, man, God, why don't you do those things again? And thousands were added to the congregation that day. People were coming to faith and being baptized. Man, God, something ex- amazing was happening in Acts chapters one through seven. You know why? Because they shared the gospel, You ever wonder why maybe we're not seen? Because maybe we aren't sharing. I think sometimes we assume God just saves people without the proclamation and the obedience of the believers. We have to be honest, church. Maybe the reason people aren't getting saved is because we're not proclaiming the gospel. Is that fair? I think that's fair. If you ever wonder why you aren't seeing lives transformed by the gospel, you should ask yourself this question. When was the last time I shared the gospel? If you're bold enough, write it down. When was the last time you shared the gospel? We love to pass the buck. Well, if other people would just share the gospel. When was the last time you shared the gospel? to somebody who's not a believer? I think you don't want to write that answer down right now because it's convicting. Is that fair to say? Why were thousands of people coming to Christ in the early church? Because they were sharing the gospel. It's a one-on-one correlation. Proclamation leads to conversion. God saves, but he's given you a duty. Open your mouth. Is it fair to say we're selfish? I think it is. Let's at least be honest, friends. Most of us aren't as bold about sharing the gospel as we know we should be. What do you think God would do in a city where hundreds of believers are daily sharing the gospel? This room, wherever room you're in right now watching online, can you imagine just for a moment if we left And shared. Think about it. Just let that thought wrestle in your mind for a moment. I don't know how many people are in this room. It's a lot. If we left today, you go wherever you're going to go today, and you shared the gospel, every single one of us, what do you think the results would be? I have a prediction. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Here's my prediction. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. You there? So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. You know what I think is true, church? We want that second phrase to be true, but we don't really want that first phrase to be true. Here's what I want to see happen. I want to see the disciples in Jerusalem increasing greatly in number. I'm not so sure I want to be the one that spreads the gospel. I'm afraid. I'm selfish. I'm timid. I think that's the reality. Friends, you and I are sent. You're not waiting to be sent. You are sent. You're active duty. I'm active duty, waiting for orders to go overseas. If that's the call of my life, I'm in. 100% I'm in. But I'm not waiting to be a a gospel proclamator. I'm not waiting to be bold. I'm not waiting to share the gospel with those who need Jesus. I'm actively doing it, waiting to be sent. I think we need to live that way. The application we must wrestle with today is, are we living on mission where we have been sent? I have a couple questions for you. Again, this is, I'm a small group guy. This is for your small group, so write these down. These will be helpful in your small group this week. I have a couple questions for you. You may be asking, Travis, where have I been sent? Help me think through this a little bit more practically. You're probably not thinking that, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you are asking it. Here's a couple questions for you. Go back one slide. I think it's one more slide back. Is that all right? Yeah, all right. Uh, go back one more. There you go. Can you write these down? Here's where you've been sent. Number one, what's your home address? Write it down. 701 Northeast East 10th Street. It's my address. That's where I've been sent. You want to know where Travis Walker's been sent to? 701 Northeast 10th Street. That's my mission field. Who are my neighbors? Who has God put directly next door to me? That's where I'm sent. Church, where have you been sent? Write your address down. Do you view your home as a divine placement by God or not? Is it where you hide or where you've been sent? Number two, write down your work environment. I don't know where your work environment is. I work at a church. It's kind of weird. So it's hard to help you apply this one. But write down your work environment. Write down your work address. Write down your cubicle number. Is that how that works? I have no idea. Describe your work environment. Wherever you work, write it down. That place, think about this real quick. That work environment is the place that you spend half of your awake hours, like in a normal day, that's, that's crazy. Half of your awake hours you spend in that cubicle. Do you view it as a paycheck or as a mission field? That's where you've been sent. Wherever you work, that's where you've been sent. What about this? What's your hobbies gathering spot? You all have hobbies. You all do something for fun. Is that just your form of relaxation or is that where you've been sent? Has God called you that, write down your favorite spot's address. What's your favorite golf course? What's your favorite coffee shop? What's your favorite mall? Where do you go to watch your kids play sports, e- et cetera? Write it down. Where do you go for fun? Those people you rub shoulders with regularly. Are those people in your life by chance or because God ordained it? That's where you've been sent. And number four, your local church's town. If you're here in Ankeny, write down Ankeny. If you're in Carlisle, write down Carlisle. If you're in Guttenberg, write down Guttenberg. Wherever you are, wherever your local church is, that's where you've been sent. I don't want us to forget our neighbors. We are in a local town. It's a local church in a local town for a reason, to make an impact for Jesus. These are all the places you most frequently go. Do you view them as places you go or places you've been sent? you are sent. I want to share with you a quote that I just think is powerful. You guys know the name Jim Elliott. He's a goer for sure, right? Jim Elliott's a goer. He went. So you would just assume that Jim Elliott would ooze going, right? If anybody wants somebody to go, it's Jim Elliott. I love this quote. Here's what Jim Elliott says. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you'd believe to be the will of God. Wherever you are, be all there. If it's in a tribe in Africa, be all there. If it's in Ankeny, Iowa, be all there. You are sent. A people on mission. That's who we are. I want to just to give you a couple reminders. Again, we've hit this already, but can I encourage you to talk about this? with your family, talk about this in your small group. This week, can we all commit to praying and asking God to help us live intentionally on mission for Jesus' fame? I want to give you, again, five areas to consider. What would it look like to be to live missionally as a neighbor, as an employee, as you play a sport, as you attend church, and as you Are part of a small group. Those are your areas you've been sent. God is intentional. He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. And He wants His name to be sent to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. These are where you've been sent. What does it look like to be missional in all these ways? This week, be intentional about getting to know your neighbors' names and their spiritual situation. Do your neighbors know Jesus? Do they know you love them? A great book I have to recommend is The Art of Neighboring. It's terribly convicting, but you need to read it. He gives you some squares, and he says, name your neighbors. Like, write down their names. How do you think that would go, church? Can you name your neighbors? If you've been sent there, we should be able to name our neighbors, I think. Missional neighboring. Number two, missional working. Do you know your coworkers and their spiritual standing? Do you talk to your coworkers about? You talk to your coworkers about lots of things. Have you talked to them about Jesus? This week, ask God to give you opportunities to talk to your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates about spiritual things. Missional plane. Who do you hang out with? These people just aren't your friends. They're not just your coworkers, they're people who need Jesus. Do your friends know you well enough to know you love Jesus? And do you love them well enough to tell them the greatest news in the world? Missional church going. A couple questions for us to wrestle with church. Is our church, is, sorry, is our town better spiritually because we are here? Is Ankeny, Carlisle, and Guttenberg, is it blessed because we're here? Does our city know we desire for them to know and love Jesus? In Ankeny, Carlisle, Guttenberg, it's still pretty normal to be religious. Do they know they have an open invitation here? Do they know we'd love for them to come? Most people, if you invite them to church, are not going to stone you. Let's use that freedom, that privilege we have right now to be missional churchgoers. Hey, I'm going to church tomorrow. I'd love for you to join me. That's still a safe question, primarily. Missional small grouping. Is that how I worded it? I love this. The books I'm reading continue to remind me that many people are growing skeptical of this gathering, but they're still open to coming to your house. What a blessing. I think the front door of First Family Church is moving, and it's moving to your front door. My small group meets at my house Thursday nights. I'm convinced my front door is now the front door of First Family Church. As people grow skeptical of church gatherings, the home is going to become the new front door. What would it look like for your small group this is my agenda a little bit. For your small group to be small enough that it's inviting. Most of our small groups are too big, Church. What would your small group look like if it was small enough that it was inviting? And you're welcoming your neighbors. You're telling people, "Hey, so sorry about the six cars that are parked out front my door every Tuesday night. I'm really sorry, but I want you to know you're invited. We'd love for you to come. Would you join us? We talk about Jesus. We'd love for you to come. My hope is that our small groups will see the opportunity we have to reach our city. They're not not little huddles. They're not private groups. They're opportunities for us to reach our, our town. The reality is that we have plenty of opportunities, church. The problem is most of us aren't living on mission like we're called to. Small group questions, I want to throw them up on the screen for you real quick. We pushed our Job series back just a week, and so you don't have small group questions. So here's your small group questions, church. I'm going to ask you to write them down, take a picture, take these with you this week. Half of our small groups meet on Sunday, so most of you will be in a small group this afternoon or this evening. I'm so grateful for that. These are your small group questions. So write them down. Take a picture of them. Be ready to discuss these this week. I just want to read them for you as a reminder for you to wrestle with these. Number one, where have you been sent? Talk about it with your family, your spouse, your children. Remind yourself that your home is your mission field. Your school that you've been sent to is your mission field. Your local church, your job. And do you view it as a calling on your life or as an accident? Number two, who are you proclaiming to? Are you sharing or hiding? I think that's the reality. I think many times it's easy to say like, ah, I didn't get an opportunity to share the gospel or I haven't had the opportunity to share the gospel yet. It might just be a fair question to wrestle, wrestle with is, are you hiding? Is there a reason you're not sharing the gospel? And is the reason fear? I think it's good to be transparent. It's good to be clear on the reasons we're not sharing who we say we are. Number three, who are you inviting? The love, unity, and message of the church has always been attractive. Not to everyone, for sure. Stephen was stoned, but to many. Are you inviting your circle of influence to enjoy the body of Christ and to hear its good news? And number four, if you aren't living on mission like you were called to, what is keeping you from living missionally? I would really be blessed this week if all of our small groups were just transparent. I'm grateful for you all. Thank you so much for living in community, opening your homes, allowing people to come in and experience community. I think it's good time. You've been in your small group two months now. It's good time for us to be transparent and vulnerable and honest and to hold each other accountable to living missionally like we've been called to.